You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, friends. Thank you for being here this morning. My name is Jamin Roller. If you are new, I'm one of the pastors here at Citizens Church. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We will be in chapter 5, verses 6 and 8 this morning. Thank you for those who are joining us online. Uh, and tuning in to worship with us. We miss you. So grateful that you're able to, uh, to worship where you are. Uh, we are a few weeks into a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we are right in the middle, really, of these nine sayings that are at the very beginning. Uh, Jesus front loads his sermon with these nine blessing statements, right, which we've said are actually flourishing statements, his depiction of the life that because the kingdom is at hand, the life that is flourishing in the world, a way of living in the world because he's brought the kingdom that actually leads to uh, being blessed and it leads to flourishing. We have taken them one at a time. This morning, we're gonna take two of them. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And then verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The way that those two are connected is that they are both about our desires. They're both uh, after our wants, if you will. Uh, My oldest uh, son, well, my only son, who's my oldest child, his name's Asher, and he has a severe uh, peanut allergy, a really serious peanut allergy. We did not know that. We found that out a little uh, after his first birthday. My wife is in the kitchen making a peanut butter sandwich, and I said, why don't you give some to Asher? And she said, well, what if he has an allergy? What if he's allergic to peanuts? And I said something really smart, like, well, that's, that's not a real thing, right? Kids don't have that. And so she gave him a spoonful of peanut butter, and within... I don't know, five minutes, he had an anaphylactic reaction to the peanut butter. His throat closed up. Uh, He was having a hard time breathing. We immediately uh, rushed him to the emergency room. It was super scary. They gave him epinephrine. He was okay. And we learned that day that he is allergic to peanuts. He had a peanut allergy, which is a real thing, like every sane person knows, right? Uh, So Asher grew up, this is before he he could really talk, he grew up knowing about his life that he is allergic to peanuts. He has an EpiPen that he takes with him everywhere. He knows when he goes to parties to, before he eats food, he has to ask what's what's in it, right? He uh, has an allergist. We have had conversations about whether or not to do the desensitization treatment, if you know anything about that. But he knows, he's lived all of his life knowing that there is a food out there that if I eat it, it will hurt me. It'll hurt me real bad. He asked me a few years ago, we had a conversation that stuck with me. He asked me a few years ago at bedtime, I think we had had a doctor's visit that day about his allergy or something, and I could tell something was bothering him. And so I said, hey, buddy, what's wrong? And he said, dad, what if someday I want to eat peanuts? And I said, "Um, bud, dude, don't worry about that. You're not missing out on anything. I lied, obviously, because they're incredible. Um, He was really troubled, though. He said, no, 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 dad. What if I really want to eat them and I just can't help it? And what he meant, what he was troubled by is, what if as I get older, my desire for them is so strong that I just can't help myself? Like, what if my desire is so strong that I, that I want them, even though I know they'll hurt me? What if I have a hunger for something that I can't have, and that's hunger so strong that I eventually eat what I can't have, right? It's this troubling thought to think, he's asking, what if one day there is this internal struggle between what I want and what I know is actually good for me? 
This morning, we're talking about these verses. We're seeing in Jesus's sermon, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, blessed are those who are impure in heart, that Jesus wants to have a conversation with us about what we want. He wants to have a conversation with us about our desires. He wants to talk about our cravings. So hunger and thirst has to do with what we desire in life, our appetites. Purity in heart has to do with sincerity of heart. Uh, it's this idea of why do you want what you want? What's the motivation behind what you want or what you do? In these verses together, they represent one of the major themes of Jesus's sermon, a, a conversation that you and I, as long as you're here in this sermon series, we will come back to this conversation over and over and over again because Jesus cares very deeply about what you want. And I don't mean that maybe the way that it strikes you to hear. Let me offer it this way. If instead of Jesus preaching this sermon to you, if Jesus was to say, hey, I'm gonna take all the content from this sermon that I preached and, and instead we're gonna have a one-on-one -on -one conversation, we're gonna sit down over coffee, one of the things he would most want to talk to you about is what you desire. One of the things he would most want to talk to you about is what you crave. You could even argue from this sermon that he would not first ask you, what do you believe? He would first ask you, what do you want? Because in hearing what you want, it reveals what you actually believe. One of the aims of Jesus's ministry, one of the marks of the kingdom, one of the results of relationship with Jesus is that he restores what is right and what is broken in us. And that is not just teaching us what to think, that is not just shaping what we believe, but that is restoring and writing what we desire because our desires are distorted because of sin. We want what hurts us. My son's physical fear, what if one day I crave what hurts me, his physical fear is our spiritual reality. We desire things that rob us of life. We crave things uh, that we were not meant to desire. In fact, I would argue that sin at its core is not just a failure of knowledge or sin at its core is not just simply believing lies, but at its core, sin is a distortion of our cravings and a distortion of the longings of our heart that we want what's bad for us. We want what hurts us and we don't desire what we were made to desire. Let me try to summarize this distortion the way at least we're gonna talk about it this morning. And I wanna try to summarize it without oversimplifying it. We learn from verse six that we are to hunger and thirst for what? Somebody say it out loud. Righteousness, thank you. That was so encouraging. I didn't think you'd do it. And then what comes from hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Satisfaction. So desire God and in desiring God, you find satisfaction as a result. Here's the distortion. To desire satisfaction as God. And so if I am to desire, I'm here and I desire God and in desiring God, it leads to a life of satisfaction. That desire gets distorted. God drops out of the equation and we desire the result of following God and we elevate that to a place of being God. We desire as God the thing that comes from God. It's idolatry. It's this distortion of believing that my life, the desire in my life is to find happiness and to find contentment, and to find satisfaction. This is the very anatomy of how sin enters the world. I don't want to just take my opinion for it. I want to show you in Scripture. This is the very anatomy of how sin first enters the world. In the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, Satan comes to tempt Adam and Eve, and how does he do it? He has a conversation with Eve that isn't just aimed at her head, but it's aimed at her appetite. There's food involved. He talks to her about what she's hungry for, right? She was made to desire God and to find full life with God and then listen to the lie, listen for the distortion. Verse four, five, and six of Genesis chapter three. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Did you hear it? Do you hear the distortion? It's not hate God. That would have been too jarring. He would have lost them. It's not God doesn't exist, right? They knew better. They had seen him. They had walked with him. Satan comes and he offers to them his own version of Matthew 5, 6. In the garden, he says, not blessed are those who are righteous, for they will be satisfied. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for satisfaction, as if it was God. Blessed are those who pursue happiness, who pursue satisfaction as if it was God and God drops out of the equation. So for Adam and Eve, their eyes are already opened, right? Uh, They are already like God. They were already made in his image. They already knew all they needed to know. They lack nothing. And what he does is he goes after their desires, not to remove them, but to distort them. He constructs a lie that appeals to their appetite, He distorts the desire to make them believe that God is keeping from them the very thing that only comes from God. So it takes the result of desiring God and it makes it the object of life. It makes it the aim of life, the goal of life, removing God from the equation. And that is how all of our desires are distorted. You and I, friend, being uh, those who are beset and broken by sin, we pursue and desire as God the things that only come from God. This is the same scheme in the wilderness when Satan tempts Jesus. Jesus is hungry. Satan comes and says, command these stones to be turned to bread. He knows Jesus can do it. So he's holding up satisfaction without God. Disobey God, eat your fill, and remove God from your own desires. And Jesus says, he claps back at him and says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is not the point, but it's too beautiful not to acknowledge. See some of the brilliance of the story of the Bible. If you think of those two stories, Genesis 3 and Jesus' temptation put together, sin enters the world through a conversation around food and desire. The first humans to ever live who were not hungry at all, they give into temptation believing a lie that they need more than they have. And then Jesus comes to reverse the curse of sin that began in the garden. And he is the best human to ever live. He fasted 40 days. He's truly hungry. And in his hunger, he resists temptation by believing that he already has everything he needs. It's beautiful. That was free. So Satan comes at him again. He says, throw yourself from the cliff. See if God rescues you. She shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Says, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all these kingdoms. When Jesus ascends to heaven, he says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples. What Satan's offering him is Satan is offering Jesus what he actually came to inherit, what he came to rule, what he, what he, what he came to accomplish for God. And yet he offers it to him without God. He tries to distort his desires that he would circumvent God, get what you came for without God so that his desires no longer include a desire for God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for satisfaction as if it was God. That's a lie and that's a distortion to our desires that we desire as God but only comes from God and it's left us craving things that, that hurt us. That's, that's what I want to hold before us this morning. We were not made, let me say it this way. We were not made to desire satisfaction. We were not made to desire happiness. We weren't made to desire those things as ends in themselves. So I want to spend some time here because that is actually what I, 
What I hope we can see is just how incredibly countercultural that is to the age that we live in. The air we breathe, the water we swim in is saying, your life is going well when you are content. Your life is going well when you are satisfied. Think of it this way. And just to make a very clear distinction, I am not saying, like maybe has been said before, or maybe you've heard before, I am not simply saying, this doesn't end by me saying we're trying to find satisfaction in the wrong places and we need to try to find satisfaction in righteous ways. I'm saying the pursuit of satisfaction is the distortion, that that's what's hurting us, the very a thing in us that makes us think what we are to desire is to, to desire this thing of contentment or happiness, that that's how it's been distorted. The very foundation and fabric of this country has as its aim the pursuit of happiness. It has as its aim the pursuit of happiness. Now, I think as far as countries go, that's probably a noble aim. That's not my point. I, we could just probably all agree that that hasn't amounted to a country that's teeming with happy people, Right? By all significant metrics, by all significant metrics that anyone would look to to say this is what happiness looks like, um, if you think mental health, if you think public trust, if you think substance abuse, if you think fractured homes, we, the people who pursue happiness, are really bad at finding it, really bad at arriving at it. And, And here's why. One, because we weren't made to desire happiness as an end in itself, but two, because of what that's become in the Western culture, uh, that pursuit of happiness is largely a, a, a feeling of an, inter, of an inner contentment, like I feel happy, there's good vibes, right? I feel pretty satisfied. And yet we pursue that inner emotion two ways. We pursue it by chasing things that are material, and then we judge it, whether we're happy or not, by comparing ourselves to others. I wanna talk about those two things. Here's the material pursuit. It means that there's a standard of living that we believe equals happiness. There's a picture of the happy life, and it's always surrounded by people who have and people who've accomplished. It's surrounded by people who are beautiful and smiling and possess a lot and they live in the right house and they have the right career and tons of freedoms. You see this in, in how advertising works, right? If I'm trying to get you to buy a product, I'm going to put that product right in the middle of someone's already happy life. I'm going to put it right in the middle of some beautiful family, some super successful person. They're going to promo it for me to get you to think that if you buy this product, you get the whole package, right? You get all of the material things that lead to happiness. So you'll never see as the promo piece, the single mom who's trying to be both mom and dad in the life of her children, living in a 600 square foot apartment. She's tired. Kids are crying, barely has time to take care of her kids, much less take care of herself. She's not the person that our society is going to put out and say, represent this product for us, right? Because according to our public definition of what happiness looks like, she's not on our way there. It's mostly through this thread of progress, right? Those who progress through life, they have more in the next season than they had in the last season. They are on their way to happiness, right? So it's the next bigger, better house. It's the next more lucrative career. It's the next uh, you know, relationship that everyone wants to be in, right? And that's our idea of who happy people are. And the problem with that, right? The problem is one, it, it, it is looking to the external to fix something that's internal, It's looking to the external to bring me to this place of internal contentment or internal satisfaction. And what that ignores is that life has to make room for negative emotions if you're gonna live life with honesty. Like, we we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Sometimes the most Christian response is actually to be unhappy. If there's something that's broken, if there's suffering in your life, then we are to mourn that. We are to carry our grief to God, which means to, the, the, the most righteous thing to do would to be unhappy about things that are sad, unhappy about things that are broken. It's also, and I'll spend more time here, 
It's also comparative. Please hear me. Uh, happiness is the goal. Satisfaction is the goal. How do I know how I'm doing? Well, if I'm happier than you are, if I'm doing better than you, if I put my life up against your life and I seem to be doing better socially, financially, romantically, then that must mean I am happier. This is the cancer that runs through social media. Now, let me say it. I'm not against all of it, right? You know that. I've said it before. I think it can serve a purpose. I think the best thing on the internet right now are the pictures I post of my kids, right? So I appreciate some of the things about social media, but hear me. Social media has been a 15-year-long untested experiment that we are discovering has had huge risk to it, huge cost to it. Increased time on social media is linked to increased anxiety and depression, loss of sleep. Ironically, it's linked to a feeling of being socially disconnected. Suicide rates, according to the Wall Street Journal, increased 56% from 2007 to 2017, a 56 increase in suicide rates in over 10 years among 10 to 24-year-olds, and every significant research would point to an unignorable role that social media played in that increase. Why? Because in society where happiness is the stated goal, it provides a space to compare how I'm doing in that pursuit up against everyone else. And largely what that's become, especially for young people, is it's become just an echo chamber of our own shame or an echo chamber of our own pride. Who seems happiest? Who is traveling? Who is hanging out together? Who is dating who? Whose kids are thriving? Whose marriage is better than mine? Who has it all together? Who is most satisfied? And where are all those answers? They're just a scroll away. We ask questions. It's just so unfair because we're asking questions that pictures can't actually offer the answer to. They can't. We don't see the full story of someone's life, right? You don't see their pain. You don't see their anxiety. You don't see their struggle. You don't see their secrets. You don't see their sin. But what we end up doing is I'll read my own unhappiness or I'll read my own pride into the things I don't know about someone else's life. I'll give you an example. Mine and Carrie's sixth anniversary, we went on a date because that's what you do. And someone had given us a gift card to a really nice uh, restaurant down in Dallas, North Dallas. And we go to that restaurant. She got all dressed up. I tried and we went to dinner and we took on our way out of the restaurant we took a picture right in front of the fancy restaurant she posted it on social media and just said happy anniversary here's the story behind the picture it was that season for us but especially that night it was the lowest point in our entire marriage lowest point in our entire marriage I had, in so many ways, failed to pursue and love and lead Carrie. We hadn't been on a date in a long time, and we had been through a ton of change, job change. We had had kids, and, and I had, in my failure to lead and love and delight in her, I had allowed us to grow apart in ways, and what that amounted to was an anniversary dinner that was really quiet and really distant and really sad. I felt overwhelmed with guilt she felt overwhelmingly defeated. And what that dinner was, was it was, a, it was a harsh wake up call six years into marriage that we had gotten to a place that we swore we'd never get. And it would not be, that was anniversary six, it wouldn't be until anniversary 11 that we would look back and say, God has restored. It wouldn't be until anniversary 11 that we look back and said, we now have what we didn't have then. And that was the night for us. And we left the restaurant, stopped for a picture. We both smiled. She posted it, happy anniversary. There's just so much the picture doesn't tell. 
But to look at it, right, you would say, wow, they look, well, wow, she looks great. He looks lucky. And they look so happy. We weren't. We were miserable. Had Jesus believed he would sustain, our hope was in him. But there's just so much that that picture didn't tell that night. And think about that with me. Think about how much we gauge how we are doing by comparing ourselves to pictures of other people's lives that cannot possibly offer an honest or complete view of their life. But what it offers instead is a platform, an an echo chamber of our own shame and dissatisfaction. Wow, they have more friends than I do. Wow, they are a better parent than I am. Wow, they have a better life. Wow, they're always so put together. Wow, they do so well in their job. Wow, they don't struggle with the sins I struggle with. Or wow, I am so much further along than they are. Or wow, I'm doing so much better. Like what a deceptive and exhausting way to judge our lives. What a deceptive and exhausting way to measure our value and our happiness. And friends, it's just rigged for failure. To think that the point of life is to try to settle some sort of inner emotion by chasing what is material, compare it to things in others where we don't know the full story, compare how we are doing and fill in the silence of what we don't know in their lives in ways that are either uncharitable to them or uncharitable to us, and it's hurting us. It's just such a thin and fleeting way of trying to carry the weight of a meaningful life. Even before COVID hit, even before COVID, Our society was right in the middle of a really confusing paradox and had been for years. Here's the paradox. You've got the things that we would say mark happiness that are increasing. And then you have the actual social status of a generation decreasing in happiness. Here's what I mean. You have for years, what's rising in the Western world is income, per capita income steadily increasing. You have technological advancement steadily increasing. Access to information, that means there is not a question that you have that you can't find the answer to. You have scientific advancement, which means for many, uh, access to healthcare is increasing or at least the tools you need to pursue healthy living increasing. You have entertainment that just skyrockets, instant streaming available to you at all times so that you never have to be bored. There is ease of travel, all of that's on the rise. And at the same time, there is increasing substance abuse, increasing depression, anxiety, self-inflicted health conditions, devastating suicide rates, the deterioration of the home, the deterioration of public trust. What? We have more information than ever and entertainment than ever and access than ever, have everything we need to walk that road towards happiness of material and comparative and emotional and the project's failing a society as unhappy as ever. And that was true before a pandemic hit. I mean, no wonder the social upheaval has been what it's been when everyone was already so frail and so thin, when a society was already barely being held together, refusing to be honest about how dishonest this pursuit has been. And where that leaves us is the way we've talked about this the last few years. It leaves me looking for happiness and rest and contentment and just floating around this triangle of discontentment. I'm either waiting for my circumstances to change. When I'm less lonely, when I am less bored, right? When I am less stressed, then happiness comes. Or when I find the person who can save me from my unhappiness or I just cope with my own restlessness, one dopamine hit after the other, whether it's screens or work or sex or substance, and it's just this triangle of unhappiness. Okay, I said all of that to say this, that we would consider this. What if the problem is with the desire? What if 
It's not just that we can't get what we desire, but the problem is with the desire itself. What if the desires are distorted? We pursue as God what only comes from God. Look right at me, my brother, my sister. You were not made to hunger and thirst after happiness. You were not made to hunger and thirst for satisfaction. You were not made to hunger and thirst for contentment. You were made to desire God. You're made to desire God. You're made to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Here's maybe a different way to say it. Blessed are those who desire what they were made to desire. Because Jesus in his kindness and in his truth, he stands on the mountain and he says, I am here, the kingdom is at hand and I wanna write your desires. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He ascends the hill and he says, the distortion of desire that started in the garden, I am here to write and I'm here to expose and I'm here to invite you to desire what you were made to desire. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Here's what he means. Righteousness is a loaded word in the Bible. And there's more to be said than what we have time for, but to desire righteousness, the thing that you and I were actually made to desire is two things, God's approval and God's presence. If you were to take all the teachings about righteousness and try to distill it down into what is probably an oversimplification, it's to desire God's approval and God's presence. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to make a way for us to have God's approval. How do you get God's approval? You can't, not on your own. There's no way to earn it. There's no way to make yourself righteous, but Jesus can. You can be made righteous through relationship with him. To hunger and thirst for God's approval is to over and again go to the only place where it can be found, and that's at the foot of the cross. And so what it means is those who are Christians, you might ask, okay, Jamie, I'm a Christian. Don't I already have God's approval? What does it mean to hunger and thirst after God's approval? That's a great question. In Jesus, you've been made righteous. Your sin has been lifted off of your life and you've been clothed in the righteousness of the righteous life that Jesus lived in your place and that you have access to because he died for your sins and rose in victory over sin and death. Here's my question. Do you feed off of that? Do you drink from that? Does the approval you have from God in Christ send you into the world in confident, secure identity that you belong to him? Or do you hunger and thirst for the approval from others? Are you wandering in the world looking to get from others what you already have in God? Hungering and thirsting for God's approval for the Christian is another way of saying is the gospel of Jesus is that truth, the truth that carries you through, sustains you through, energizes you in your very life, every moment of your life. To desire righteousness is also, and I think mainly in the context of his sermon, to desire God's presence, to desire that God, the prayer in, that we name the series after, the prayer in Matthew 6, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we are hungering and thirsting for the presence of God in our life and in the world, that in my life I want God's presence to come out of my life as love and joy and mercy and good deeds and around me in my home, in my family, in my church, in my country, where there's injustice anywhere, I want God's presence to rule and reign and to flow into my life through me to the world around me. Psalm 37, four puts it this way. It's super clarifying. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Here's what that doesn't mean, how it's maybe often misunderstood. It's not give God what he wants and then in exchange, God will give you what you want. No, delight yourself in him and you will get him. And in getting him, you'll get the very thing your heart desires. This is what he means in verse eight when he talks about the pure in heart. It's those who have a single-minded, 
not duplicitous desire in their heart for God. We were made to hunger and thirst for God. We were made to have right relationship with him through Jesus, to hunger for God's presence in our life and for that hunger to come through a heart that is unadulterated in desire for him, not double-minded. Blessed are those who desire what they were made to desire. If I think about maybe the last five years of my life of trying to be honest with God, trying to think about uh, having grown up in church in a lot of ways, the things I had to unlearn and then things I had to relearn. This has maybe been one of the biggest shifts for me. And I hope I'm not the only one. I think this requires a shift because here's what this doesn't lead to, friend. Here's how this doesn't end this morning. It doesn't end by me promising you a religious way to find satisfaction. That's not the point. It's not offering a spiritual track to find real happiness. It's saying happiness is just not the goal. Satisfaction is not the goal. If your response to the last 27 minutes, if your response to the last 27 minutes is, okay, I will try God out and see if I'm satisfied, you've missed the point. If you and I try and use God to get satisfaction, we will miss both. And what that means is that for many of us in, you're at church, you're watching online, there is some sort of level of desire for God or desire for the things of God that brought you in here this morning at some degree. And what that means is that if Jesus sits down with you face to face and he's not preaching a sermon, he's having a conversation and he's asking you, like I believe he's asking us this morning, what do you want? What do you crave? That's going to require honesty. Because there's a right answer to that question and then there's an honest answer to that question. And often they're not the same. The right answer is, Jesus, I want you, desire you, want to follow you. I want God's approval and God's presence. I want righteousness. The honest answer for so many is, Jesus, I want something from you. I am after satisfaction. I'm after happiness. And I think you can get it. I think I'm going to try to walk the religious road to get what everyone else is looking for in non-religious ways. And in a religious culture, for many of us, God and church has just simply become our religious way of trying to get satisfaction, which means we're pursuing the same end as everyone else, which means we're worshiping the same idol as everyone else. Friends, God is the object. (laughs) He's the object. We desire him because he deserves it. Would you hear something? God will not be used as a pawn to simply manage our displeasure. He is the point of life who himself is satisfying. Several years ago, uh, before I was part of this church, before I was in this role, I was uh, having a heartbreaking conversation with a family member who I love dearly at a Starbucks. And he had decided to leave his wife and children for another life. He had decided to, to pursue a life of sin. And I'm pleading with him. I'm saying, look, don't, don't do this. And he's talking about their challenges and how bad their marriage is and how he just doesn't want to do it anymore and he doesn't have the energy for it anymore. And I don't remember all that he said, but I remember looking at him, looking in his eyes and saying to him, Jesus is enough and Jesus will be enough. And without even taking a breath, he looked back at me and he said, I tried, Jesus is enough and it didn't work. And that was it. I think that had a lot of honesty to it in some ways. I I have felt maybe that sentiment before and maybe you have. Friend, it's not true. It is not true. That has never been true in anyone's life. That is the kind of statement from a heart that came to Jesus, not hungry and thirsty for him, but came in hopes of finding him useful. 
came in hopes that he would manage something in our lives. You didn't try Jesus is enough and it didn't work. You tried Jesus is enough and found out it wasn't Jesus you were actually after. You didn't try Jesus is enough and, and, and found out it didn't work. You tried Jesus is enough and discovered it was difficult and discovered your pre-existing coping mechanisms were actually a lot easier. He didn't lie to you about what following him was like. You lied to yourself. And I don't mean to sound harsh, but I do mean to sound sober. God will not be used. He will not be a pawn to manage our displeasure. God and only God is the point of life and he in himself is satisfying. And Jesus, friend, ask questions about your desires. Ask questions about your cravings because he loves us too much to let us deceive ourselves and loves us too much to let us treat him as if he's less than who he is. So he sits down and he looks you in the eyes with a heart filled with truth and grace and asks, what do you want? What do you crave? What are you hungry for? Do you desire what you were made to desire? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you need to hear something encouraging? I do. Um, because I have, uh, I have really cheap appetites. That's not what's encouraging, don't, just hang on. I, I have longed, I, I have longed for so long to have a deeper, purer desire for God. I was talking to a few of our staff last Thursday and to Marcus, our new young adults minister, who is quickly becoming one of my favorite people in the world. He asked me a question. He said, what do you do when you are preaching something that you struggle with in your personal life? Meaning, what do you do when you're communicating truths that you yourself struggle to live by? And I looked at him, I said, well, that's never happened before. <laughs> um, that's every Sunday, to be sure. But what I told him, what I, what I responded to him and the others who were with us is that, you know, that's this Sunday. I, I, I felt so acutely that that's this Sunday, meaning that's this, that's this moment right now that I want so badly to have a hunger for God that is deeper and that is more pure. And one of the prayers that I've prayed for years is Psalm 27. One thing I ask, one thing I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord and to gaze on his beauty. And I pray that prayer not because that's actually what I want, because that's what I wish I wanted. So the conversation Jesus wants to have about desires is always a hard one for me, but there is encouragement here, friends. Please don't miss this. There's encouragement here, even for people like me who preach truths they have a hard time living out. And here's the encouragement. Who is blessed according to Jesus? those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It doesn't say those who are righteous. It doesn't say those who have arrived. It's those who desire, those who hunger and thirst. This is how one commentator put it that was so encouraging. God's promise is given to people for whom righteousness seem painfully missing in themselves and others. Those who know they need it are the ones who Jesus says are the ones who are blessed. Blessed are those who see the problem in themselves. Blessed are those who long for a deeper longing. Uh, those who would say, I, I want to desire more than I desire. Do you wince at what's not right in your life? As we've walked through these beatitudes, you're like, you know what, I'm not poor in spirit. I don't mourn like, I'm not meek like I want to be. And Lord, I just need your help. I've got so far to go. Or maybe in these last 30 minutes, you've been convicted over distorted desires and you long like me for better appetites. And you would say, Lord, help Help me. You know what that means? You're doing well. You're doing well. Blessed are those, not those who possess righteousness, but those who long for what they feel they have too little of. They're blessed. And even if that desire is small, there's a, a, a saint, an old saint, a sister of ours, who is a Catholic nun. Her name's Teresa of Avila. She was, lived in the 1500s. She wrote poetry and she authored books and she wrote something in her journal that just ministers to me. She says this in her journal. 
I do not love you, Lord. I do not even want to love you, but I want to want to love you. She says, if I strip my desires away to the most raw and honest place, I couldn't call it love. I couldn't even call it desire to love, but I want to want to love you. It reminds me of the conversation that Jesus and Peter have in John 21 around the charcoal fire where Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, but he asks him, will he compare his love to the love the other disciples have? Do you love me, Peter, more than these? Would you put your love up against their love in this moment? He had done it before. Jesus says, they're gonna take me, they're gonna crucify me. And Peter says, if all of these fall away, I'll stay with you. And so there was a moment in Peter's life where he believed his love was greater. He believed his desire was stronger than anyone else's and then he betrayed Jesus. And so now Jesus asks him the question again, will you state your degree of love for me? Do you love me more than these? And he's learned all he will offer Jesus is that you know what's in my heart. He says, Jesus, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he knows that Jesus can see into his heart and he believes that what Jesus will find is not a lot of it of love or maybe even a little love, but Jesus will find love and that that will be enough. However great or however weak it is, Jesus knows what's in your heart, friend. He knows the desires you have and to whatever degree you want to love him, to whatever degree you desire to hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're blessed. And you say, no, 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 no. No, the desire is too weak, maybe, but the one you desire is strong, is merciful, gracious, gentle, and lowly, and he can take whatever hunger is there and whatever thirst is there, and if you're honest about what you want, he can write your desires. He can change them to what they were meant to be. Brother, sister, what do you want? What do you crave? If you are after happiness as the point of life, satisfaction as the goal in life, you'll never find it. But if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you can sit across from Jesus and say, Jesus, my desires are a mess, but somewhere in here I want more of you. Somewhere in here I want you to be enough for me that our Savior and King and friend can take the desire that's there. And if we offer that to him with honesty, it can grow to those who feel the promise, who believe the promise. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, which is what we were made for. Blessed are those who desire what they were made to desire. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. I thank you, God that to stand really close to the Bible here on stage and yet to feel really far from its truth is simply another way that you invite me as your son into the grace and love and mercy of the gospel. I thank you, Lord, that to whatever degree my brothers and sisters here in this room, watching online, listening later this week, Maybe they feel really distant. Maybe, God, there is just conviction weight over the distortion of desires that plagues, that hurts. Lord, just this realization that so often we want what hurts us. We desire what we weren't made to desire. I pray that that would not lead to despair or hopelessness, but there would be a confidence, Jesus, that we can turn to you, that you are enough. You can take what little is there. You can mold it and grow it and shape it. Would you, in that, God, restore our confidence in things like this? That so much of what being here right now is not just 
to hear something we need to hear or to sing in ways that we need to sing or to check a box that we maybe feel we need to check. But we're here to lay our desires before you and ask that you would write them. As we sing, as we pray, as we hear your word taught, that we would learn to hunger after what we were made to hunger after. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. Jesus, that you not only hungered and thirsted for righteousness in your time on earth, but you were completely righteous. That you were always pure in heart, that there was no divide in your inner life, but you loved with sincerity. Help us to be like you, Jesus. We love you.